Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome. How many, this is like year two for you with this whole summer kind of thing, did Failure 101. I see just one or two familiar faces. Welcome back. Welcome back. So we got like a lot of new people. They didn't talk you out of it before you came. That might have been, you know, a little bit smarter. Um, like Matisse said, my, my name is Paul. I'm a counselor. Um, as a day job, I spend my most of my days um, sitting with clients, working around several specific issues. Um, I happen to be a trauma therapist, so I work with um, men and women who have experienced some level of um, primarily sexual abuse, um, anywhere from childhood all the way up through adolescence and into adulthood. Um, physical abuse, emotional abuse, some, sometimes some spiritual abuse. Um, which oftentimes can lead into some levels of uh, sexual dysfunction. So um, for men, it often looks like some level of uh, sexual addiction. Um, this might be new information to people, but talking about sex with a kind of a stranger in a room is hard for people. I don't get it, but sometimes you know people are a little uncomfortable with that. So it's. Um, I try to treat that area as, as carefully and, and gently as possible because it is such a personal and a vulnerable part of our existence here on, you know, on this planet while we're here. And actually out of some of that work is what a lot of the topics that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks kind of has come out of. This, this area of being vulnerable and open and that when we get wounded in that, we end up having this, this dynamic called shame. It is, <clears throat> I could probably just specialize in it as a therapist and put my kids through college. It would, it's just such an incredibly prevalent and incredibly strong dynamic in a whole wide variety of areas. So as I was thinking about um, what what I want to talk to a group of people with if I have a chance to you know, have a captive audience and they can't go anywhere for an hour and a half. Um, this is probably what I want to talk to you guys about. And there's, um, it's, it's not going to be as, I'll get, back, I'll get back to that in a minute. Let me ask this question. Knowing what the topic is, by the way, does anyone know this is about shame, or is that new information to anybody? New information? No, I knew oh, you knew it. Okay, great. We have one who came because, everyone knew that was, we were talking about shame? Yes. Excellent. Thank you. I tend to be interactive. It makes me feel good as a speaker when I, when I know people are listening and they nod their heads at the right times and, you know, <laughs> all those things. That's why I like small little rooms like this. It makes it a little bit easier. So, um, Can I ask a personal question just straight off, just, just straight out of the gate? Would that be okay? This is a large group. This is, you don't ask personal questions in a large group? All right, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, this might just be the, the end of it right here. As a counselor, I'm required to ask, you know, what are your feelings? Okay, you know, that's what just counselors were told to do all the time. 
would anyone be willing to um, identify their feelings sitting in the room right here, right now, in a class about shame? Is anyone aware of what's going on? Yeah. Hopeful. Very nice emotion to be sitting in. Yeah. Uh, I feel a lot of shame around balance. Like just the topic comes up. What am I guilty of right now? Okay. Balance. Yes. I would say curiosity. I don't know how you're going to broach that subject. Yeah. Curiosity is a good one. Anyone else aware of what's going on inside? Tell everyone it's hard, okay? okay? Just tell everyone it's easy work. <laughs> they come back if they know it's easy, yeah, okay? So um, getting over shame's a piece of cake. <sighs> Anyone else have feelings at all that they just want to be willing to put out in the room? All right. Would it be okay if I put my feelings out in the room? Here's why this topic is going to be interesting. Um, I find myself nervous. I find myself feeling a little overwhelmed because this topic is so broad and yet so important to people's lives. Um, I'm afraid that I'm going to bore you guys or I'm not going to be very interesting and you guys are going to go, yeah, this guy's not very good and not come back. I'm afraid that um, I'm going to say something which might mislead somebody and end up frustrating you or um, even worse, uh, discouraging you on your own personal journey. These are the things that I'm sitting in. This is not the normal kind of thing a speaker is supposed to tell you that they're sitting in before they kind of start a, a teaching series. But I'm doing it for a reason. Um, shame loves secrecy, and it's something that we don't talk about. Our insecurities, our fears, our struggles, our um, things that we're embarrassed by. And it would be unkind of me to tell you guys you, need, you should do all this and then your world gets better if I'm not willing to do that. So this series is actually going to be a little bit different than maybe other series because I am not going to claim to have all the answers. I wish I could. That would make my life a lot easier. In fact, a lot of time teachers stand up because they have some sort of mastery over a subject, and they're now going to say, just do all these things, and you also can have mastery over this. The reality about shame is because it's such a core concept, because it's so deep, it's a lifetime experience on how to start to address it and how to um, no longer struggle with it. The reality is, even this last week, even this last couple days, there are things in my life that I have been wrestling with. And so I find myself going, Monday's coming, I'm supposed to go talk to all these people about how to overcome shame, and yet I'm still wrestling with some of it. So I want to kind of 
put that out there to say, can we journey together? Would it be okay if we all choose to um, step into this place and say, let's figure this out together? I think there's some information I might be able to give you, and there might be some prompting that I can give you uh, that will help kind of direct some of that and guide some of that. But I might, if you ask a question, I might have to answer back and say I'm not exactly sure right now because the, the area can be so complex and so messy and so personal that I might not know your story and kind of some of the pieces that line up with it. Does that all make sense to everyone? Okay, good. So I can keep breathing now and, and keep moving through some of this. All right. If, if you were to risk practicing what I just did, exposing yourself just a little bit, not a lot, I don't want you to tell your deepest, darkest secrets, but if you were to choose to expose yourself and just kind of speak honestly about yourself um, where more than just one person could hear you, let's say in a group like this, what would you want from the group to be able to feel safe to do that? If you were to risk opening up, what would you like the group to do or how would you, li how would you like them to respond? Validation. validation. Someone over here said that. Thank you. What do you mean by validation? Sure. That'd be pretty good. What else would you need? Like non-judgmental. Non-judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> to prove our point the opposite direction, thank you very much. Okay, so don't do that. And do say something along the lines of, you know, wow, that must be hard or something like that. Okay, non-judgmental and validating. Anyone else? What would you need? I would this. I don't know how this can be communicated, but I'd like to feel like people were really listening. They were making eye contact with me, maybe they were leaning forward, or it was just evident they would respond or nod when I made a certain comment, or it was just evident they were really listening. To yeah. Engagement. Yeah. You want them to be engaged with you. Anyone else? What do you need from a group of people to feel safe to risk opening up or exposing? I got a buddy that if I, if I share something struck tough with him, he'll say I get that. But many times I feel like that's just kind of a cliche response, like okay, keep talking. I get that. But I think Seamus is a huge issue. It'd be really nice to know that other people in this room it really it resonates with them that they, they understand. Yeah, that's that's my stuff too. Isn't it amazing that you can see someone across the room and you can see them nodding their head in that, oh yeah, I totally get where you're coming from kind of validation and, and resonant with that. That's, that's a good one. So trite answers. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Platitudes don't tend to work when it comes to personal issues like shame. Yeah. identify when they can't 
share the experience. Sure. So it's kind of a respect issue. And it's not like something I would ask that I can see. It's something I'm asking for that I can't see. Yeah, that would make sense. Don't fake it. Yes. Confidentiality. Confidentiality. What does that mean for you? Yeah, absolutely. What, what's your name? Megan. Sorry? Megan. Megan, remind me to come back to that point in okay. just a little bit, okay? Before I move on. Yes? In terms of if I can't relate to something, oftentimes then I will include something about the person. And so knowing that I do that myself, one of my concerns about exposing something that I'm ashamed of is that if someone can't relate, they may draw a conclusion about me. And so maybe hoping that people, even when they can't understand or can't relate, don't, aren't quick to draw a conclusion. You know, just let it be okay that you don't relate or that I don't relate. You know. Yeah. There's more to the story than that. You might not get all the pieces. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Affirmation and encouragement, I guess, because they reveal something. Um, my, my hope is that I am not that I am not the shame or the issue that is I'm enveloped in. Right, and right. To be able to be encouraged and lifted out of, of and that somebody sees that that's not, that the situation is not who I am. You don't want to be shamed in the shame class. That's a good thing, yes. okay? Let's go for that goal. That's an excellent one, actually. I saw another hand. Yes. You don't want to be fixed. Yeah. Got it. Isn't that annoying? <laughs> Put your heart out there and then someone just says, well, just do this and then you're all better. Says the counselor who does that all day to people. All right. Um, anyone else? Anyone else have something that would be important to them for them to be able to feel safe if we were going to... Just in theory, this is purely theoretical. Um, risk, you know, actually countering some shame stuff in here and sharing some stuff. Yeah, Jimmy. Maybe if we open prayer. Praying. Praying in a church. <laughs> what if we may, might not even have to be in a church? But praying is a good thing. Can we come back to that in just a second as well? I think that might be. You think God actually cares about our shame? Huh. I think it's a pretty good way for it to go away as well. Yes. Camaraderie. Camaraderie. Can you explain that a little bit more? Um, that you're not the only one this is happening to or has happened to. Yeah. You're not the only one out there. Because we can tend to feel so alone, like we're the only one. Yeah. That's a good one. You had another one, Megan? I did. Um, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I personally appreciate like, the ability to be very candid. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I don't know, 
Does that make sense? Is there anyone tracking? Um, honesty, candidness. Um, you seem to have the good ones, because I'm going to come back to that one too, okay? Anything else you want to share? Because you should like teach the class. This is, this is good. Let me tag the two things here real quickly that Megan's kind of talked about. Um, the honesty, the candidness. Um, one of the things that I've learned in my life, ladies and gentlemen, is that I can have all sorts of theor theoretical knowledge, head knowledge, on how to fix a subject, how to, how, to, how to move through it. But unless I have some avenue to practice it in, unless there's an experiential component to it, it tends not to sink in. Therefore, one of the weaknesses that I have is I like to give lots of homework. I like to have lots of experiences because I'd rather have you guys discover something for yourself. And again, I tend to guide it or facilitate it. Um, and the reality is we all might have the exact same experience and walk away with multiple different lessons or, or experiences in that. Would that be fair to say? Which now means it isn't just one person who's teaching. We now have a whole room full of very wise people that your lesson might resonate better with someone else than, you know, what I want to, what I want to nail here. So, um, I am going to ask many of you to engage in this process in some certain way. Now, the candidness or the honesty component, um, hello, um, the candidness or the honesty component, I do not want you to back the truck up and give the entire group all of your dirty, dark secrets for everybody, okay? That would be inappropriate in this group because, number one, this isn't the area for the, this isn't the, the context for that. Uh, I'm not sure how we could all hold that appropriately. Um, so there needs to be a level of moderation in that um, for everyone involved. Um, but you might want to consider taking one step beyond that comfort level, okay? You can go, and I've shared this before with lots of people, but there's maybe this aspect or maybe there's this other deeper piece that I just haven't ever told anybody. I'm going to choose to put that out there. Again, one step over that line tends to be kind of that really sweet spot when it comes to um, sharing pieces of your story. Does that make sense for everyone? Which takes us to the second point that Megan brought up, which is confidentiality. Um, You, ladies and gentlemen, have come to this class for a specific reason. The rest of the church hasn't. The rest of the community hasn't. This is, this is a sacred place because when people put their story out there, it needs to be honored. It needs to be respected, which means um, if they put it out one time, then that's all they put it out, and they don't have to put it out there anymore. It's appropriate to let people tell their own story instead of you telling their story to everyone else. Does that make sense? Um, that's how we hold on to confidentiality. So you might have something that resonates with you, um, but it tends not to work well when you leave here or when you put it into the prayer, the prayer chain. You know, Megan said this. Really, we should really need to be praying for her because, oh, my goodness. And, and then it goes on and on and on and on and on like that, okay? Um, let people tell their own story. Would that be all right? All right. Now what are the feelings in the room? <laughs> Have they changed at all for anybody? No? That's all right. 
we'll stick with the hopeful and the anticipating option. That would be good. Um, <clears throat> Jimmy, should we pray? I think so. Why don't we do that real quick? Can we pray, ladies and gentlemen, and then we'll get started? Father, I am thankful that you know us. I am thankful that our deepest, most intimate parts of our lives are not a surprise to you or are hidden from you. Lord, I would humbly ask that as we step into this topic of shame, as we look at a thing that everyone wrestles with in some level or another, that we would be able to um, clearly hear what you have to say to us, that your voice and that your compassion would be um, received well by each person in this room. Lord, I know that in a, a group this size, there are people coming in who are shouldering immense burdens. There are people who just even being here is out of their comfort zone. And I would pray that those individuals will find peace, at least in the next hour, and a safe place to, to sit and to um, consider changing these things about themselves. Thank you that you do love us. Thank you that we can be known by you, and that we get to serve you, and in your name, amen. <clears throat> For the last <clears throat> three or four, hmm, six weeks or so, uh, my family has... Um, needed a second vehicle. We've kind of gone in and out of our second vehicle. We've had some mishaps here and there, and <clears throat> we're a family of six. I got four kids at home. And when you got four kids at home and a wife and a dad who needs to be uh, you know, at a job at a certain time and then kids who need to be at certain uh, places at certain times and sporting events and school and all that, it gets kind of crazy. So a second vehicle's fairly convenient to, to have. So um, after a while, I, my 22-year-old my Honda ended up um, dying because the clutch went out on it. I love the little car, but it was now tired and dead. So I said, well, I actually talked it over with my wife, and I said, what, what should I buy? Um, huh. Guys, I don't like talking about myself. This is hard. Okay, sorry. Um, so my wife, with her kindness and her compassion, prompts me and says, Paul, you've been driving beater cars for a long, long time now. It might be time to buy something that you actually like, that you actually want. Okay? And that sounds good to me because there's lots of cars I like. I like driving. I like driving fast. I like driving, you know, um, we'll call it creatively. Um, <laughs> And so I, I opted to look around and buy um, a nice little Mini Cooper, okay? A new little Mini Cooper. 
fun little car to drive. Who can agree? Who, who understands what we're talking about now? On um, the kind of a visceral level, driving. All right. Love this little car for about three days. Um, whenever I buy a car, I try to do my due diligence. I try to research the car. I try to know what are the good, what are the good ones, what are the bad ones, what are the known issues, um, um, all just kind of the specs about it. And then I look around. I try to go in as informed as possible. I like to buy a good used car that has um, a good history on it. I know who the previous owners were that have records. Um, I like to get a car inspected to make sure that it looks okay and everything's good. Again, trying to be as responsible and um, do my due diligence as much as possible. So I finally, after looking on Craigslist, find this nice little um, Mini Cooper and decide that's the one I'm going to buy. Now, it had everything I wanted. The people had owned it for, um, they were the second owners. They had owned it for, I think, three or four years. They had all the, all the records on it. And they said, you're welcome to go talk to our mechanic about it. He's the guy who's been working on it. You can ask him any questions you want. So I did. I jump in my car. I drive down there. Tell me about the car. What do you think? He says, it's a great little car. No problem. Runs well. I've done all the servicing. It's a good little car. I make a commitment, I make a decision, I go and I buy this car. And um, after about three days, there is this sound, which it doesn't sound quite right, but I'm going, I've done my due diligence, everything should be okay on this car. I um, take it back to the mechanic who's done all the servicing on it, and I say, can you tell me what the sound is? He jumps in it and starts driving around, and he comes back. And when he comes back, he has that look on his face that you don't want to see a mechanic have on the look on his face, which says, this is not a good sound. He says, that is the gearbox or the transmission in there. That is um, not a good sound. I go, all right, not happy right now. You said it was a good car. And he gets this kind of sheepish look on his face, and he goes, sorry. That helps me a whole lot. Um, I take it to an independent guy. They confirm what he says. Um, bad tranny on it. And instantly, this script starts playing over in my head over and over and over again. Do any of you know what that script sounds like? Because I see heads nodding here, OK? Um, I should have known better. Um, I should have expected this. I should not have trusted anybody. I should have, I should have, I should have. I am shooting on myself, okay? An awful lot of it. Um, it's not a good thing to do. I literally get this stomach ache and I lose sleep for two or three nights because it's going to cost more money to get it fixed. It's going to cost time and energy and effort. And I am now confirming or replaying the messages that I have told myself for years and years and years and years and years. Take it to the mechanic, take it to a transmission place. They swap it out. It's a chunk of change. Um, long story short, that's not the only thing that was wrong with it. And after driving it for about six, eh, not even six, eh, about two months, I hate the car. Every time I get into it, the car that I'm supposed to love, the thing that's supposed to feed my heart, the thing that's supposed to you know, make me feel good about myself, I literally despise. It's like I just hate this car. It is an evil car. 
So I say, I'm going to cut my losses. I'm not going to throw any more money into it. And why, why drive a car that I just I can't stand? Throw it back on Craigslist. Full disclosure, I like to sleep at night. Guys, here's what's happened. Here's all the work I've done to it. Here's what it needs. Some guy buys it off of me. All right. I am done with Jezebel, okay? This horrible, <laughs> horrible car. Um, we then, and we make that decision because we have another vehicle that's been sitting in my garage for two years. I've been rebuilding a nice 69 Volkswagen Bug, okay? Which is a great little ride for those who like classic cars and like to work on them. I've been rebuilding it for a couple years for my daughter because she wanted a car for her 16th, her first car to drive around. She's always liked these things. So I found a great deal on one several years ago, knew the issues, have been rebuilding it. And I said, it's just about ready to go. I can just drive that around and enjoy that. You know where this is going, apparently. <laughs> drive around in this um, bug for about another month. Um, and it's running OK. Everything's fine with it. Um, but it's a 69 bug. It has 48 horsepower, okay? <laughs> For a guy who likes to drive fast and drive creatively, it ain't the car. Um, it's small, it's just, it's just not the right car. Plus, driving a car that old and that, um, I'll use the word raw. Driving a car back then was very different than driving a car now. You actually had to understand how cars work and, you know, it's just all sorts of, it's a very different driving experience and not one that my daughter's ready for. So I go, you know what, this isn't going to work out. Um, so I said, I got to get another car. But I've done all this work to it. It's a good car. I'm actually going to make some money on this one because I got it for cheap and I've done it well and they have a good, re good resale value and all that good stuff. So I start looking for another vehicle. And I really, really liked my Honda. I know Hondas well. I'm looking for just a cheap, around town car. So I start looking for an old Honda again. After lots and lots of searching, I find a fantastic 89 Honda Prelude from a guy, you know, up in Washington. Go up and test drive it, 126,000 miles, original miles. It's good, clean car, um, clean title, all those good things that you want in a car. I test drive it, it drives like a dream. For again, a 20 year old car, it is just fantastic. I drive it around um, on a Friday night, say, yep, talk them down even, get a good price on it. All right, I'm gonna buy this car. So tomorrow, Saturday, let's meet up and we'll do all the thing. DMVs aren't open on the Saturday except for two of them. One is in um, Salem and one is in Tannisbourne, out in the middle of Hillsboro. So he still wants to make this happen. He needs to go get some paperwork to be able to finish the transaction. And I tell him the tags are bad on it, so I need to get it taken through DEQ before um, we can get it registered. So he, he says, why don't I drop the car off with you while I go pick up the paperwork? You can run it through DEQ real fast, and then we'll just meet up at the D DMV. No problem. That's fine. I can do that. Um, I run it through DEQ, flies through. It's a perfectly running car. I um, bring it home, I park it, wait for his phone call to meet me out at Tannisborn. Phone call comes in about two hours later. I jump in the car and make it a block from my house. And it dies. What in the world? I mean, I jinxed with cars now or what? I call him up, don't go to Tannisborn, come on over to my house because your car's not running. And he says, really? Well, I still expect you to buy it. 
You might have all sorts of thoughts and feelings about that. I had some very strong thoughts and feelings about that as well. Um, I've given you no money. This is not in my name. I don't own this car, and there's no way in the world I'm going to buy a car that ain't running. Sorry, just ain't going to happen. He's ticked off at me. I mean, ticked off. He comes by my house, and um, after demanding I buy the car, and him and I have a um, emotionally charged conversation, um, he decides that I'm not going to buy the car and leaves the house in a veiled threat, okay? You know, threatening something else down the road. That car sits in front of our house for about a week before he comes and tows it away. So here's this kind of reminder and, you know, I'm worried that he's going to come by and, you know, break the windows on our other car or something like that. So I got all this going on. Same script starts to play over again. I should have known better. I should have known there was something wrong with the car. I shouldn't have trusted this guy. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, okay? All of these, why? There's something wrong about me that made me get into this situation. Um, he comes and he gets that car and now it's gone. I get back in the bug and guess what? <laughs> the bug stops running. So we're down to one car. I've been through three or four cars now. My history with cars is not the finest. From where you're sitting, tell me some of the things about myself, some of the truths about myself I should be able to know about myself. It's going to sound very similar to the things my wife tried to tell me this, during this whole process. Okay? What would, what would you say to me? about how I'm feeling about myself, about some of my decisions, anything like that. Anyone got any ideas? Okay. Say it again? That's a question. You actually yes. Have what would you say? I, I need some encouragement. Uh, my emotions are, are fra frail right now. Trusting. You, you opened your heart. You're trusting. You gave it a go. Okay. I, I would say positive. You've had a bad patch of luck, but uh, it'll work out eventually. Okay. Um, Hold on a second. I couldn't have known any better. Okay? It's out of your control. Yes. It could happen to anybody. It could happen to anybody. You sure? Absolutely. Yes. It's not your fault, Paul. It's not my fault, Paul. Huh. Two things I'll say. As words of encouragement, we all have junk that happens to us in our life. We have to do with it, move on. God puts him in our lives. We have to learn to rely on him and stuff. Yeah. The negative thing, you're too car-oriented. I'm too... Car-oriented, but my culture kind of is. <laughs> it is. Okay. A little car-oriented. Someone, yeah. You diligently informed yourself and pursued the knowledge, and you cannot fault yourself for the unforeseen. Yeah. All of those is exactly what my wife spent many hours telling me. Ladies and gentlemen, why is it so hard then for, that for those messages to sink in? Why don't they help? I wish I could figure that out. Why do you think that us as human beings have such a hard time making this profound shift to accept what I would argue is the truth? Because cognitively, I know I'm not a mind reader. I can't have all the information. I have done my due diligence appropriately enough. And yet, for some reason, I am still beating myself up. Because for so this feels true. I should know better. Something like that. Yes? Well, I was going to say that you, you 
can make you feel vulnerable because you've done everything that you can and still this happens. Yeah. It kind of feels like, I don't know, if I was in your position, I would feel like that, yeah, so I did everything I did, I could do, and it still happens. Yeah. So it can make you afraid yeah. to actually go out and do something like that again. Yeah. By the way, it has. I am gun shy now when it comes to cars. That way there's a horse out on the <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Me and my bicycle got here. <laughs> All right. We're, we're not just, I mean, shame is about not a, a thing that's not addressed. Your role as a man, gender is not even being identified right now. Oh, yeah. And we're not identifying the, the whole influence that your role in the family and already when we first started talking, your sense of responsibility for the, uh, the whole family functioning and financial situation. Yeah. That's like where maybe your other friends are just really great. And you yeah. Just, I, I don't know if there's a comparison. Going good on. good theory is a good idea. Someone over here. I saw it. Yes. Yeah, I was just to piggyback on that. Like shame usually is more complicated than just the situation at hand. Usually you respond to Hmm. Um, yeah, it's not usually, at least in my experience, it's not usually. I mean, it is the situation, but it's it's more than that. Yeah. Yeah, your gender, your family. Your story. Your story. Yeah. Any other theories why it's so hard to shift? Yeah. Well, all those responses to hear were like, we were like, it's just, when I hear things like that, when I'm in that kind of a situation, it's the most frustrating kind of words to receive because I don't feel like I'm really being heard yeah. for how I feel. Yeah. And I think that... So, I'm sorry, you're responding to some of the things you're hearing from the group yeah, to like, me? Yeah, like, oh, it's not your fault, or oh, but it's just bad luck, or oh, okay. but I'm just like, you're not hearing me. Huh. Like, it's not the point. <clears throat> huh. The point is that I'm feeling devalued, discouraged, upset, yeah. um, afraid, like at a loss, yeah. or whatever, and I feel like all of that speaks to nothing yeah. where I am. And that if someone were to ask, like, how are you feeling? Where is that coming from? Why yeah. do you think that is? Yeah. When did that start? Where do you, you know, that kind of thing is like more addressing the deeper issue. Yeah. And not just trying to like clean up the, the immediate situation. Trying to stop, trying to make, trying, trying to change my feelings. Yeah by giving me some more information. Wow, I like lots of hands. I'm going to go in the very back. I have that question. So when you're buying a car, have you ever thought about taking two mechanics and getting a check? Yes. Yes. That didn't work out so well. <laughs> Good idea, though. <laughs> Someone over here. I just had a question. Just, I mean, if that was me, uh -huh. I've had things where uh -huh. it's like, to get something done and it's uh -huh. just not working. Uh -huh. Then I start to doubt myself. Like, is it yeah. not supposed to happen? Am, is, is somebody trying to give me a message here that yeah. I'm not supposed to be buying a new? Wow, does that complicate things? Does everyone play that game yes, of yeah. maybe so there's something bigger going yeah. on and God doesn't want me to that's have this I car? That's, that's a, yeah, that just adds a whole other layer of complexity, doesn't it? See how messy this is? And it's a car, four wheels and a, and a piece of plastic. It's, it's just so complex. Imagine, hold on a second, guys. Imagine what this is like when it's an important issue. Like, 
your relationship with your husband or wife, your marriage, your children, your job? What if it's your parents, your family? What if it is important things? Your, your personal integrity, your sexuality. Imagine how deep that cuts. This is just a car. It's just, you know, a few dollars in the grand scheme of thing. It's all going to burn anyway, but it's still, this is such a powerful, powerful piece. And frankly, I don't want to sit in it anymore. I want to actually truly figure out what to do about some of this. I want to see if we can get an actual shift where some of the truth that we hear out here after we are validated, that's what you're looking for, that in-between piece, the I understand what you're sitting in, I understand what you're feeling, I understand how you're hurting, but you don't have to stay there. And how we can actually move out of that place into a place of I am allowed to make mistakes, I'm allowed to get burned, even more importantly, I am allowed to become vulnerable again. Because when we get burned often, what do we do? We close up, we lock down, or we lash out, we attack. Or there's actually one more. We try to appease. We try to placate. We try to become the good boy or good girl. It's, it's a profound shift here. Um, I'd like to define shame so that everyone's on the same page. Because depending on who you read, what you kind of, your context of you're doing this research in, um, there's several different working definitions of it. I want to get everyone on the same page so we all know what we're talking about here. I'm going to define shame as a um, I am bad versus I did something bad. All right? Um, I am personally flawed versus my choice that I made was flawed. Does anyone need clarification on that? Does everyone understand the distinction between that? One is a state of being, I am, and the other one is a little bit more distance or objective or outside of yourself. My behavior, excuse me, strawberry banana sobies don't work while you're speaking. <laughs> um, the activity or the action I did outside of myself might not have been the best decision, but I am still inherently a fairly valuable person and I am okay. My, my core value hasn't been rocked or shaken in some way. Um, one author says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. There's a cause and effect. Because I am flawed, or the experience I have been in um, proved that I am flawed, that I am unworthy. That's the important word. I am somehow disqualified from receiving or being worthy of receiving love or belonging. I am not wanted. This is why last summer we spent the whole time on failure. Because when we step into those mistakes, we often get that message. Okay, i done something bad, therefore I am no longer wanted, valuable, loved, um, all those things. Um, three things that you might want to know about shame. Um, kind of the foremost author right now on shame stuff, and I'm taking some of her stuff um, for this series, but I'm also weaving in some of the, my own observations within my practice. Um, Brene Brown says um, there are three things we need to know about shame. 
Number one, we all have it. Shame is universal. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no one in this room right here who is immune from shame. The only people who are immune from shame are individuals who lack the capacity of empathy or are unable to connect with another human being. Those two things. So there are some individuals who um, might be developmentally delayed where they just have the inability to connect in some way with another human being. They kind of live in their own isolated world and reality. You know, I think some of you might be thinking about some of those people right now, but um, there are, people just cannot do that, and those people might not ever experience shame. In fact, that is one of a um, personality trait of some of these horrendous um, criminals, because they are able to do um, some very heinous crimes, and they literally don't feel remorse or shame over that. They don't feel bad about it at all. They lack the capacity for that. No one in this room, hopefully, <laughs> um, or else we have bigger problems, um, has, has that. We all have some level or degree of that. Um, another universal truth about shame is it's not our favorite topic to talk about. We are uncomfortable talking about shame. It's the personal, vulnerable, intimate, embarrassing parts of us. And so it is naturally uncomfortable to talk about. And then the third universal thing is the less we talk about shame, the stronger a grip it holds on our life. This is why most people um, need to get healthier or move through their story with the help of another individual, whether that's a personal individual like a counselor, whether that's an incredibly good friend, whether that's a support group, a 12-step group, anything else like that. Connection with another human being and being able to put out your story and let other people hold that is essential for overcoming shame. The good news and the bad news. The good news is Overcoming shame isn't complex. It isn't some sort of mystical, magical formula that, that some person holds the secret to, and if you just learn the secret, then you can overcome shame too. That's not how it works. The recipe is incredibly simple. I've just given it to you. Put yourself out there. The bad news is none of us are quick to sign up for that class because that just scares the heck out of us. So I want to help teach you how to move into that place a little bit easier so that you can start to actually see some movement in this. How to get closer to another human being, how to connect them, how to open up your heart a little bit. Questions at all about any of this as we're moving through? You can ask questions. I like questions. Questions are okay. Yes. Um, I'll give you kind of what that um, process looks like. Um, some of that involves responsibility. Some of that involves um, making amends, some of those things, which help in the process of, of moving through shame. Um, shame, 
as we're talking about it here, is more of that ability to fully and completely accept yourself first. It's less about making things right with other people, which is more along the responsibility or amend, making amends side. That's kind of taking care of other people. I, I really want you to be able to appropriately care for yourself and value yourself. I want you to be able to see yourself the way Christ sees you. For those who are familiar with the gospel, this might sound familiar. For those who aren't, um, within the Christian tradition, the concept is while we were screwed up, while we were messy, while we were not very attractive, somebody who was perfect actually unconditionally loved us the way we were. They didn't expect us to change first before they accepted us. That concept right there is profound. And when your creator does that to you and you are able to accept and experience that, that unconditional love, it makes it easier for us to accept other people in their mess. That's the gospel. That's all Christianity is about right there. We're all screwed up. Someone loved me, therefore I'm going to love you. Isn't that just an amazing concept? The gospel is rooted in abolishing shame. I'll get to your question in just a minute, okay? One of the models that we're going to look at is um, going through the creation account in Genesis. Because I've always been intrigued by this one line in Genesis that says, and they were naked and they what? Felt no shame. What an amazing place that must be. And if you look at the, the uh, similes, uh, the similarities, they are naked. They're fully exposed, and they have no shame. How do you get that again? Is it possible to get closer to that? Can we find that again as human beings? Are we called to that? I would make an argument that we are. And I think that we've missed it in some pretty profound ways. Um, even to the point where it becomes acceptable to, as a Christian or as a church, wow, I can't believe I'm going here already. Hold on a second. Let me make sure I need to do this. Might as well, okay? Ah, oh, man. When we have songs and hymns that call ourselves wretches, I'm not so sure that that is exactly what we are. I'm not sure that, that, how, that is how God sees us. Our sin is disgusting, yes. Our choices have been bad, yes. But I'm not so sure Christ looks down on us after loving us unconditionally and sees a wretch like me. I think he looks down and sees a son, an heir. So I think there's actually some conflicting messages, even within Christendom, which confuses this. I actually, for me personally, felt more spiritual or more holy if I despised myself a little bit more. I'm such a bad person. I need, I need God's redemption so much and all those things, okay? 
And I think that that's a little backwards. Now, that might be challenging some of your theological beliefs here. And again, I'll, I'll be glad to wrestle with that. Um, I'll be glad to wrestle with that. Let's close in prayer. Um, shoot. Um, are we actually done at 8.30? Is that the right time? Does anyone know? That's kind of what we did last time. Does that sound right? 9, 30, 10? Anyone need to be anywhere? All right. I'm going to... Um, I'd like to propose a theory because the counselor in me, the guy who likes to know why things work the way they work, why things happen the way they do, always has this question of where does shame come from? Are we born with it? Let me ask you that question. Do you think we are born with shame? No. We have a universal no. Does anyone make, want to make an argument that we are born with shame? Okay, so this will be an interesting conversation. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Let's, we're going to take two minutes here because I, I think that this would be important to wrestle out. We develop, so you're, in fact, you're in the right spot, right there, right in the middle, okay? You're the fence, okay? Good job. Who wants to make an argument of we are not born with shame? Okay, not born with shame, Why? Okay. We have an experiential reason right here. That's fantastic. I got four kids. I understand. All right, one more argument on the not born of shame side, and then we'll give the opposing view a shot. You're on the fence, man. You can't say anything. Sorry. <laughs> Mine is in the middle. <laughs> All right, you can have one argument on both sides. Go for it. Okay. And they have to recognize probably in certain times they can't really do it on their own. Okay. That issue of shame and doubt about who I am as a person comes, I mean, it gets kind of sandwiched in the personality development. All right. Who wants to make an argument for we are born with shame? Jimmy, go for it. We are born into sin, aren't we? It's not sin shameful. Okay, that's your argument. That's, that's my argument. We'll start there. Yes? Following on that, if you take the tennis three that they were not ashamed before the fall, they treated sin, and we support what Jesus said. All right. So we're going for the, from the theological position of because we have sin, we have shame. Anyone else? Yes?
Okay. All right. I'll give one more. So it requires a cognitive ability to understand what you are doing. Or in a moment, like to at least respond to emotionally. Got it. Okay. That's just a fun little exercise for me because there's there's arguments on both sides, and it's just fun to watch you guys argue all the time. That's just you know <laughs> some you know, benefit for me. I'm going to make an argument um, that an infant, a newborn, um, developmentally. This is the human development side, not the spiritual development side. I'm actually going to jump right in the middle with you, buddy, okay? Good, good spot. Um, we all go through a series of spiritual development as we grow up. Would that be fair to say? We understand truth and, and, and ethics and morality different as an adult than we do as a child. There's all sorts of great little tests and, and ways to figure out where someone is at in their spiritual development. Within your human development, your physiological <coughs> development, um, a, an infant, a small child, does not have the capacity to understand what they are doing. You're exactly right. They are not, they really don't care about mom's feelings when they are hungry or when they got to go to the bathroom. That's why little kids lay around naked all the time and they just don't care because there isn't any awareness of how another adult or another human being is responding to them. They actually their brain, parts of their brain, aren't even developed for that yet. You actually develop that later on. Um, there's another really great speaker uh, of a, a, she was a neuroscientist, um, and she was, um, she had a stroke one morning, okay, the, let me get the right, the brain, yeah, that sounds, yes, that's her, and she, um, she, she had the stroke, let me get the brain right, that's logic, that's over here. So she had the, um, the stroke in the left side of her, of her brain, which shut down all of the reasoning functions and would kind of go, come and go as the stroke was happening. And so when the stroke was kind of pushing on her brain there and the blood flow stopped, she reverted back to what an infant experiences, which is pure amazement at just um, experiencing. There was no reasoning behind it. The light is amazing, and it's just cool and lost in that. That's why little kids get lost in, you know, mobiles and lights and things like that, because they just don't have the capacity to understand reasoning and how their actions interact with other people. Now, that doesn't last too long. That lasts up till six, seven months. Then you move into around 18 months, where a child, it's appropriate for them to start understanding that my actions have consequences. My actions have um, impact on the other human beings around me. And the way that the other human beings around me respond will either encourage more acceptance and creativity of your own exploration as a child, or they will discourage it and teach you other lessons, primarily shameful lessons. Um, I had the client today, I asked if I could use this story, and he said I could, um, where when he was about five years old, he goes up to his mom, and he says, Mom, I just want you to know that I love Dad more than I love you. A little five-year-old kid doing that, 
Any, any parents in here who have had a similar experience? Thank you very much. I have too, okay? My kids have come up and said, I love you more, Daddy, than I love Mommy, or vice versa. The, um, my client's mother's response was one of anger and hurt and tears. She broke down and cried and cried and cried. What do you think my five-year-old client learned about himself in that moment? Okay, help me out with my job. What would he have learned about himself? If I speak the truth, I hurt other people. Okay, what else do you think? Don't tell others how you feel. Fantastic. So already at five, you're learning to hide. You owe people love. I owe people love. I'm responsible for other people's feelings. I have power over other people for good or for bad. Isn't that amazing? Now, what would have been a really good response of mom? How, can you, how could she have responded that would have let that little five-year-old boy walk away feeling good about himself and sharing that information? Fantastic. I think dad's fantastic too. I think dad's pretty great. Yeah. Anything else? Any other kind of initial response you'd give? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm so glad you love Dad so much. That's, that's wonderful. Her own love for yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, through parenting, okay, you can enforce the value of your child or you can pull it down. Now, Mom wasn't intentionally trying to shame her son, right? She didn't go, hmm, how can I make him hurt because he just shared that with me, okay? She probably just responded out of her own hurt, her own story, and yet the consequence of that is this, this pattern, this belief that I, I am wrong in some way. You've, you said it great, Jimmy. Um, the phrase is egocentricity, a child actually believes that they are responsible for all of the things that happen around them. When I, I told the story last year, but when I was about eight years old in the truck with my dad and he hits a red light, he gets frustrated because he has to stop at red light, so he lets out this great big, <sighs> really was frustrated. And as an eight-year-old, I'm sitting in the truck saying, it's my fault, I did something wrong. If only I would have been a better, you know, if only I would have been better than my dad wouldn't have been mad. Now, as adults, we look at the logic of that and go, what? That's just crazy. There's just impossibility. But children don't know any better. We have no capacity to understand anything different. The um, little girl who won't eat her peas, and then the next night, mom and dad sit her down and say, honey, I need to tell you that mom and dad are getting a divorce, and the first thing out of her mouth is, I promise I'll eat my peas. And so for a lifetime, she chokes down peas because she knows that if she doesn't do what she doesn't want to do, then bad things will happen. Children believe that they are responsible for everything that happens around them, which now says, can a child guarantee that everything happens around them is good? So what do we learn naturally because we live in a fallen world? 
bad things happen. It's my fault. Therefore, something must be wrong with me. See how that works out? Isn't that frustrating? And for the parents in the room, you can be the most perfect, best parent in the world. You can respond right every time, and your child's still going to get those painful messages because unless you keep them locked in their room, they've got to interact with the world in some way. My daughter, who when she was about second grade, she um, went off to school, came home one day from school because she lives with a counselor, and you know we tend to be really touchy-feely in our house. Uh, we talk about feelings, we validate feelings, we listen, we let people share their feelings, and she went to school and came home and said, you know, so-and-so on the playground hurt my feelings, and I tried to tell them all about it, and they said, so what, and walked away. Dad, why did they do that? <laughs> okay? We can't shelter them from the world. The world's going to teach them these painful messages as well. Now, they might not carry as much. They might, might not be as far on that spectrum of, of the shame, but th we learn it somewhere along the way. If you were to think back on some of the messages that you heard growing up, whether overtly because someone said them to you or covertly, accidentally, where do you think, what experiences do you think would have taught you some of these messages that you were wrong or responsible for something bad that's happened around you? Just think about it for a second. See if you can start to connect some of those pieces. Where do you think you learned that it's your fault, that you're responsible? One of the things that I want to do in the shame class, and again, this is another theory of mine, um, when we wrestle with shame as adults, in the here and now, we are, we are approaching life from a childlike mentality. We're believing those lies as a child still. And so one of the things that we can start to do is to start maturing in our emotional ability or our emotional reasoning so that we can start looking at the situation through adult eyes rather than a child's eyes. A child... I know that for a fact, when I was a little kid, I truly believed that I should have known how to do things before I was ever taught them. I always expected to be good at something straight out of the gate. I never gave myself permission to learn and mess up and grow. I always wanted to be good right out of the gate. I should have known how to do this already. I should have known better when I made that mistake. Even though I've never done it before, I should have known better. Sound familiar as an adult now in a car? I just carry the same messages. That's where I think shame comes from. Um, there's probably some other places it comes from, but I'm, I, I'm going to focus on just that one. Number one, because we're all kids, so that's kind of a universal kind of thing about us in the room. <laughs> uh, we're all kids. Um, we probably, none of us in the room had a perfect experience as children. We can all think of painful or hurtful experiences that have weaved into our story. Um, and the better that we know that story and the better that we're able to look at those pieces through adult eyes, through mature lenses, 
um, I think that we might start to get some traction on how we view ourselves in the here and now. So, um, <clears throat> shame comes from a lack of empathy. If someone comes up to you and shares something painful about them, something messy about them, and the fact that you don't run away in horror or laugh at them or judge them or criticize them or fix them, if you just listen attentively, engagedly, connectedly, if you resonate with them as they share that piece about them, what is the message they are hearing about themselves? Um, you're worthy. I'm worth it. Even if their story is messy, even if the facts are, you know, maybe they made some, some really stupid mistake, do you think they're still going to hear that message that they're worthy if you have empathy towards them? What happens if you discount them? if you judge them, if you laugh at them, if you do all those other things. And let's say the offense, the mistake is just small. What do you think they walk away with there? Wrong. Yeah, I am wrong in some way. Empathy is such an incredibly powerful gift to give someone. The ability to, to say, I see that you hurt, and because <laughs> you hurt, I hurt with you. I don't get lost in your pain. I don't own it. I don't take responsibility for it. But I just hurt because you hurt. That says your feelings, your emotions are valuable. And we learn that on a subconscious level. And again, as children learn that from their parents, so that when they're hurt and parents go, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, rather than, and I've been guilty of this one, so many times when I've been a parent, my kid comes in and he's just screaming and crying, and you can tell that he's really hurt. And the first thing out of my mouth is, don't bleed on the carpet. Don't bleed on the carpet. No, no, no. <laughs> See, that, that could be, <laughs> stand on the linoleum right here. Oh, man. <laughs> I'll remember that one. Um, I've gone to the, what's wrong? Tell me what's wrong. And so they're, they're crying. They can't even breathe. You know, they get that heavy <gasps> kind of thing going on. And, and you're trying to have them talk and, and cognitively tell you what's going on. Isn't that just amazing? And so I don't know where, I, where it, it clicked in one time. But finally I said, what does it matter what happened? What do I know about them now? They aren't happy and they need to be cared for. So I stop asking them questions. Instead, you just take your arms, you wrap them up, and you let them just cry for a while. You let them just hurt for a while. You don't even care why until our bodies are amazing, ladies and gentlemen. We naturally move through the healing process. And once we stop crying, once the pain diminishes enough, we're able to breathe again. Then we can say, tell us what happened. When we move through that, when we sit in, in other people's pain that way, the gift that we give them is profound, profound. It's a gift that you can give each other in this room. You can give your spouses. You can give your friends. You can give other people in your support group. You can just show up and be there for them. Huh. Until <clears throat> you try to do that for yourself. I am just feeling terrible right now. I just, I can't believe that happened. I'm feeling horrible. 
And what do we go to immediately within ourselves? I gotta fix this, I gotta come up with a solution, I gotta figure out how to hide this, I gotta figure out how to make this right, and we never ever give ourselves permission to empathize with ourselves. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it just nice to say, I'm having a crappy day, and there's nothing I can do about it, and I'm just gonna let myself have a crappy day and just survive, you know? I'm just gonna do the bare minimum until I can breathe easier again. You give yourself permission to do that, it tends to last much shorter. You tend to move through it much better, much more thoroughly, and then you can get to the solutions. Now again, practically, there might be some immediate things you have to do just to, to get through life, but overall, I think that is a better way of moving through those painful situations. You got a question or? Uh, yeah. All right. I have a question. Yes. Formula to overcoming shame, um, part of it. It's, it's a big part. Yes. So I'm sure many of us have reached out to the wrong person. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, because I feel like shame at its core is an identity thing. Okay. So we reach out to the wrong person. Yep. Then they just inform <clears throat> your identity poorly, your yeah. family, yeah. and then you're less able to, to be vulnerable again. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how do you, how do you not put all your stock in that person and what they say? What's like the, the, the pre-work? Yeah. And like, how does that? That's a great question. Um, the simple answer is, um, don't talk to the wrong people. <laughs> um, the bad news about that answer is it takes, usually takes a while to figure out who the good people and the bad people are. And by the time you find out who the good people are, you're already carrying extra pieces around that. Um, there are some more pieces that we're going to get into a little bit later in the series on. Um, it's a difference between internal validation and external validation. When you need other people to validate you, we're dependent upon their attitudes, their behaviors, their, their choices. When we internally validate, um, we have more control over our own story about our own responses. I want to encourage a lot of internal validation and start moving away from external validation. So, again, we'll get to that later on in the series, but that's, that's a very key, important part to a lot of this. I was thinking just on her topic, there's going to be shame involved, like however sensitive we are. Yeah. There's going to be some shame involved in any interpersonal interaction that I'm really being attentive to our the way we're experiencing ourselves as we're with someone else. I'm, I'm just saying it's inevitable that human brokenness is going to be in there. So creating categories of this person was okay or this person wasn't okay might, you know, we can, it depends on our relationship yeah. with that person where yeah. we're able to speak into maybe my brokenness, right. which would, would be speaking about, you know, my less of my shame than me owning my brokenness. Hopefully they'll reciprocate and yeah. the brokenness that created that situation. Yeah, hopefully. People can respond well one time and not respond well the next time. Depends upon the context and the level of connection, yeah, all those stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's it's did I mention that there's 
this is messy. There's, I don't, might not have all the answers. Um, believe me, if I did, um, you'll be the first ones to know the title of that book, and then I'll retire. So buy it. I don't have it yet. Um, it is, we only got about five more minutes, and I got two more pages. This is a common theme. Um, yes. Do you have an overview, like a subject matter for each of the weeks? I do. Awesome. I'm not going to tell it to you, but I have one. Um, yeah, let me tell you where we're going, and then I'll amend it a little bit here. Um, today we're talking about the origins of shame, in case you um, didn't figure that out. Um, <clears throat> all right. We're going to talk about how to overcome shame. Um, it's a recipe, but like any good recipe, um, it depends on the quality of ingredients, and um, uh, you can make it really, really good sometimes and really, really bad some other times. So this isn't a guaranteed thing, but the... Um, the recipe I'm going to use to start overcoming shame um, is this catchy little acronym called HOPE. How about that? I planned it that way. Um, overcoming shame requires us to have or make an honest evaluation of ourselves as we currently are. That's going to be one more week. That's going to be next week. How do we take an honest assessment of ourselves as we currently are? Not as we, not as we should be, not as we want to be, not as other people think we should be, but how do we just take an honest, direct assessment of this is how I am. These are the mistakes I have made and just own that stuff. And I'm gonna have a great, huh, a really fun homework assignment for that one. It's gonna be great, come back, really. Um, <clears throat> The following week, we're going to talk about um, how to maintain an open posture um, to allow new truths to sink in. Um, that's the O in hope. Because shame is so strongly rooted in how we view ourselves that we oftentimes, for a long time, as my wife was trying to reassure me of the truths about myself when I was buying this car fiasco thing, um, I had this, yeah, but script going on in my head. She'd say something, and I'd go, yeah, but, okay, there's this more piece and this more piece. I didn't have an open posture. I actually didn't position myself to truly consider or let sink in what she was saying, suspending my belief in myself, my aired belief in myself, how to have an open posture in some of that. Um, The P in hope, and this will be the week after that, how to become fully present and connected to the here and now. Um, another phrase or term you've heard for this is called mindfulness. Um, I think probably within my professional practice and my personal life, the concept of being present, of being mindful, has been one of the most radical shifts in, in my story and the places I take my clients. Shame is a lot of living in the what should have been, what I wish would have happened, what I wish didn't happen, and you're not actually in the here and now. Learning how to fully and completely embrace the reality of where you're at is a learned skill set. And when you, people who get really, really good at it, 
they're contagious to be around because it's just, they actually become childlike, which is something I think Christ calls us to become. They get excited about the little things. <laughs> I walked into this room a couple months ago when Ben asked me to come and speak and he showed me where we were going to be, and he was all excited about the little lights hanging up in the room. You know, these lights are great. They're just awesome. He was fully present in the room talking about the little twinkle lights in the room, okay? That's fantastic. That's great. How to... When you can be present and connected, the level of empathy you can offer someone, the level of um, resonance that you can have with someone else is remarkably therapeutic and healing. So when you can be present with yourself and present with other people, um, it's a good ride. Um, and then E in hope, um, that is the exposing our story. That's the experiential component of that. Um, time for one last story. Yeah. Again, how this kind of hit home. Um, I can't, gosh, I, I'm never teaching on shame again because I didn't realize I'd have to talk about me. Um, how long ago? 12, 14, mm, let's say 13 years ago. We'll split the difference. Um, I was, I came home and I needed to get somewhere really fast, but I had this horrible shaggy hair. It was just a mess. And I've, because I'm a cheapskate, I've um, cut my own hair for a long time. And it's not that hard, really, when you got the little clipper things and, you know, got a mirror. It's really not that tough. Um, I was in a hurry, and so I um, grabbed the clippers, went in the bathroom, and took a big swath out the side of my head only then realizing I forgot to put the height guard on it, which keeps it the right height, you know? And it was just in the right place where it wasn't quite low enough to be able to recover it, you know, make something good of it. It was up to here kind of thing. And there's just nothing you can do about it. You're just stuck like Chuck. So I walk out, my wife's sitting over here, it's on this side, and I walk to, hey honey, you wanna see something funny? She looks up from the book she's reading, she goes, yeah, and I go, Look at that. Eyes get about this big. I couldn't believe. And it's like, what are you going to do? And at first, there's that just knot in your stomach. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I just did that. I had always wanted to shave my head, but had never, ever had the courage to do it. Guess what? <laughs> no time like the present. So without thinking, I said, if I don't, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to end up giving myself some really bad, you know, try to fix this. I went in and took it right down the middle, commit to it, and then took the rest of it off. Completely shaved bald. That's weird, just looking at yourself with no hair. If you've never seen your head that way, it, you, my head's funny looking. Um, my children, well, I had two at the time, uh, my daughter and my son, um, they were still up, they were in bed, but they were still awake. So we called them down, and as they came down the stairs, I met them on the stairs. And when you have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and they see their dad for the first time with no hair, scared them to death. They literally <laughs> took two steps back, like, who's this guy coming up the stairs, okay? And my daughter says, it sounds like you, daddy, but it doesn't look like you, daddy. But you can melt your heart, it's like, oh, come on. And finally, you know, they warmed up to me and they felt my head and everything. And the next day, I had to go to work. And I was shocked. 
I was surprised at how I went to work the next day because I literally walked taller. I literally had this feeling, this emotional feeling of, bring it on, I'm bad now, I got a shaved head. I, I just don't give a crap anymore. I didn't do it, I didn't, I didn't shave my head to have that feeling, that came naturally. And I, and I literally called my wife and I said, this is what I'm feeling this morning. I can't believe I'm feeling this. How can a haircut change a person's belief in themselves so much? And I had no idea at the time, but if I think back on the story, I put, to, I put the pieces together. When you shave your head, you can't hide it. It's exposed. You just can't, there's nothing, unless you've got a really big, ugly hat or a toupee, you just can't hide it. And when you don't hide it anymore, when you just put it out there finally, there's this, oh, I don't have to spend all this energy trying to hide this stuff. I'm just out there. And when you do that, I walked taller. I felt more confident. And I kept it that way for six months. It was wonderful. I would go back to it in a heartbeat right now if... I didn't look like, you know, part of the Aryan nation. I, I just, my job won't, won't let me do that. But I keep it short enough. And um, Exposure. When we put our stuff out there, I had a client, two clients within the last week, tell me something that they've never told anyone else. And it's been kind of this big secret. And both of them have said, I literally feel physically lighter now. Exposure, having it being seen, experiencing that produces such an amazing shift. And I want each of you to be able to experience something with that. I want you to be able to walk lighter, walk taller, have more freedom. That's the E in hope. That's going to be one week. Um, we're doing this for eight weeks. I better make up some more. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about resilience. Um, shame is directly connected to resilience, the ability to um, get up after we make a mistake, the ability to just overcome. Um, resilience in weightlifting, you're able to push more weight, um, more reps, because you've built up resilience to the weight. Um, if you are emotionally weak, that means you get one strong weight on you and you just can't move. So we got to build some emotional muscles. So resilience. Um, and then we're going to talk about validation, um, again, that internal validation versus external validation, how we affirm ourselves rather than depending on other people outside of us, oh, excuse me, to validate us. All right? Wow. Um, thoughts, questions, deep spiritual insights, anyone? All right. Yes. Yeah. Thing, you know, yeah. Right here on the page that I didn't get to today says, why do we shame ourselves? 
and one of the answers is, um, uh, where is it? It's a preventative strategy. If I don't shame myself, then it's like giving myself permission to screw up later on or to accept that bad thing that I did, and we don't want to often do that. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I think that we can empathize with ourselves without having to condone any bad behavior or bad choice we might have made, which would have led to that shame. Um, I'm going to leave you with one controversial um, statement here, and then maybe we can wrestle with it next week. It's my, um, it's my belief that I think that we've learned somewhere that actually having shame is a good thing at times, even when we do things wrong. And I'm going to argue that that is not true. Okay? We are not supposed to feel shame ever. We'll go back to Genesis. We'll look at some of that. We'll look at some of the beliefs around some of that. But I do not think that we are supposed to feel shame. I think we're supposed to feel guilt, but we're not supposed to feel shame. Okay? We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through the weeks. Um, I mentioned I give homework. For those who would like to um, jump into this on their own personally, um, what if you were to write a list of the bad things that happened to you or near you? Okay, they might not have happened directly to you, um, but you can have what is actually called secondary trauma. Um, it's the brother or sister who's watching their brother or sister be, be beaten, and they feel like they're responsible for it. Um, so it doesn't actually have to happen to you, but it has, can happen near you. What experiences have happened to you or near you um, growing up or even as an adult? And then how do you believe that these things are your fault or that you caused them or you're responsible for them? Think through those stories and... Um, Who has told you that you're responsible for those things? Can you think of someone specifically who said, this is your fault? Um, it's the client that I sat with who, as a three-year-old, when she was being spanked, mom said, if you cry while I am spanking you, your father will divorce me. Do you think that might send some very profoundly distressing messages to a three-year-old? Um, that would be an example of an overt message. She's responsible. We get covert messages, unspoken messages all the time. Who did you hear some of these messages from? Just list them out right now because um, we're going to see if we can start making some shifts in, in looking at them as a mature adult instead of, as, instead of through child eyes. All righty? All right. Thank you for coming on a Monday night in a warm room even though it didn't look like summer again today because it's not actually here yet. So how about we pray, and then we'll um, see you next week. Father, again, thank you that um, we have a chance to try to understand ourselves um, as you see us. I pray that our eyes would be opened and that our hearts would be softened, that we will be able to grant ourselves grace and compassion, um, and that we can live with freedom and joy and happiness and excitement and peace. I pray that the lives of each one of us in this room this week will um, bring you glory 
in the things that we say and do and think. Thank you for loving us unconditionally and in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.